My own practice these days has been involved with a, a wrestling somehow with the Theravada tradition as I was trained in the monasteries and centers in Thailand and Burma and India and the wonderful things that I've learned in practice. A wrestling somehow with a way to make that practice real and meaningful and alive in our culture and our time, to make it heartful for people, to connect it with our lives in a full way. And I find that doubly compelling now that I'm living as a householder in the fullest sense of the word. It's a really important thing that we do, our practice. Important for ourselves personally, our own being, and perhaps our own being for many lifetimes, if you believe in that stuff. But equally important for the world. In the newspaper today, after the descriptions the other day of American bombings of Libya, one evening for a half an hour of five different targets, it said, among other things, that the military barracks where Gaddafi lived was bombed, although he was probably hiding in some other place. But unfortunately, two of his older children were injured and his youngest daughter, 15 months old, was killed. It said on the same newspaper, headline that 79% of Americans backed Reagan's being tough with the Libyans and that many of our European allies were up in arms about it all. But I thought about it. One doesn't have to think very far. It's really more a feeling of it. Say, well, if you kill a child in war, What does it matter whose child it is? It's a child, it's life. But somehow it seems even more outrageous when it's the son or daughter of the leader of that country. How can we do this? How can 79% of us say, go for it? And how can we act in these ways? When even much of the world that our friends are saying, "This this is excessive. It seems that we can do so when our mind gets disconnected from our heart. Because the mind by itself can do almost anything. And I've played video games, I kind of like them, and I have a computer, and I could well imagine being at the Pentagon, and from a mental level, uh, like spy stories and fantastic multi-dimensional chess games, figuring out trajectories and the whole war games, and it being uh, compelling and interesting and, and uh, challenging. But I think that it can only take place when one lives someplace up here and out of the body, out of touch with the heart, out of touch with the earth, out of touch with our basic humanity. How can we not see that the other people have children like we do? What I'd like to talk about tonight 
is a way to put this practice that we do in retreats in a kind of perspective, to look at the power and the purpose of these retreats and this way of practice, and see it for its strengths, and also see in what ways we can work with it to make it more fully our own. There are three domains of liberation or freedom that come from practice. And make no mistake about it, the deepest purpose of the meditation is freedom. It's, the Buddha said himself in a very beautiful statement, not merit, nor good deeds, nor bliss, nor rapture, nor concentration, nor insight and understanding. None of these things is the purpose for the teaching of a Buddha, for the teaching of an awakened one. But the sure heart's release, this and this alone, is the purpose for these teachings. That is, they are the teachings that can lead one to liberation. This liberation can be found in different dimensions or domains of our being. There is a freedom in the mind when we touch and encounter directly the fundamental emptiness of the world, emptiness of self, emptiness of I and me and mine. And when we move from a small self-identity and break out of the sense of grasping and holding and identifying, a tremendous sense of space and freedom. A second kind of freedom is a free heart, a heart without barriers, a heart of compassion. And just as the freedom of the mind is the freedom of emptiness, the freedom of the heart is the freedom of fullness, of connection. Old Tibetan Lama Kalu Rinpoche, wizened old, wonderful old guy in his late 80s who grew up in caves in Tibet, was born in 1890 and did all the great yogic practices. He said at one point, you live in illusion and the appearance of things. There is a reality, but you do not know this reality. When you discover it, you will see that you are nothing. And being nothing, you are everything. That is all. These are the two sides of this freedom, the freedom of emptiness of the mind and the freedom of, of being everything, of our fundamental connectedness of the heart. It's like I spoke last night of Thich Nhat Hanh saying, Vietnam didn't just happen to the Vietnamese. It happened to everyone in this room. And what happens in Libya and what happens in Lebanon and Cambodia and Los Angeles and everywhere, we're all a part of it. And the second kind of freedom is a freedom that allows the barriers to the heart to open so that we can touch and feel that connection with all of life. 
The third freedom is freedom of action. An ability to live or manifest in the world of form without being caught by our fear. Money is scary and sexuality is scary and relationships are scary and work is scary and you know all those things and so forth. Even more than the practice that we inherited from the Theravada tradition, which has been primarily a monastic and a renunciate practice, we as Westerners and as householders have to find the ways to come to this freedom in ourselves, to be free in our actions, free in our manifestations, not just free apart from the world, but free in the very center, in the midst of it. Now, most of you have been sitting for a while, at least three or four retreats maybe. Some of you have sat for five or ten retreats or five or ten years. What you'll notice if you observe your practice is that it's a spiral. And certain times in your practice, you touch the place of fearfulness in the marketplace. And there's this voice inside, if you listen to it, that says, like it or not, kiddo, you've got to go out there and do it. Other times at your practice, you may be overwhelmed with that, and the voice inside says, it's time to retreat. It's past time to retreat. Get yourself to the desert. Go to a retreat. Go to a place to take you to the depths of the silent mind. Other times in the spiral of practice, the voice is heard mostly from the heart. And it's the voice of our sorrow or our longing or our deepest grief or pain. And it says, enough already. I really need to be felt. I need to be honored. And that becomes the work of our practice. Inwardly, and outwardly through the expression of connection, of caring, of service, of many kinds. Even at retreats, which are designed for more of the inner work, there are different ways to approach practice which become a source of wisdom, a source of strength for us over many years of practice. I know it very well from a few years ago when Deepama, who most of you have heard about in various talks, a wonderful old Indian woman who's a great yogi and a great meditation master and the sweetest old grandmother you'd ever want to meet at the same time, a combination of tremendous compassion and love and also great strength of mind. Anyway, she was at the center in Massachusetts and I had some time before the three-month retreat to sit. So great, I'll go and sit with her and follow her instructions and really work under a teacher again, which I hadn't for a while, and see how she can help me and really take my practice to a new place. Well, just about that time, it was four or five years ago or so, I was also going through one of those cycles in the spiral 
with a lot of drama in my relationship life. Some of you may be familiar with that kind of thing in your life. <laughs> sure, not many. And it was a time, as I recall anyway, where uh, we had separated, my wife and I. We came together and separated a number of times in our, in our um, whooping crane kind of courting dance or whatever. And it was very hard, and I, I was in a lot of pain and a sense of failure or loss or rejection, grieving, very strong things, because it touched not just that experience, but it touched a whole big array of all of those experiences prior to that in my life that were, were layered around that same emotion of grief or rejection or loss. It was very painful. And it came time to sit. And her way of teaching was a very classical Mahasi Sayadaw style practice. Sit and make a mental label for everything and stay with the breath and don't let the mind wander off. And I loved her and I really wanted to do it and by God I tried. I sat there and I tried to label and I tried to stay on my breath. And it wouldn't work because there was so much going on in my gut and my heart. And then I said, all right, you know, I'm really a yogi, none of this stuff. I'll just do it. And I sat down and I said, I'll sit for five hours. This is one way I learned in the monastery. I just won't move. And even if it really hurts a lot, I'll use the pain and I'll get concentrated. I'll do it that way. And I sat. You know, which I have that kind of will. And it's helped me at certain times in practice. Not a prayer. I sat and I sat. And I wanted, really, I guess I wanted to cry more than anything else. And the end of the five hours were over and my legs were killing me and my mind had gotten tense and I was somewhat concentrated. But as soon as I got up, again, I was flooded with all this stuff. It was late that night. I just couldn't bear to sit down again. And it happened that week that Shogun was on TV, the miniseries, and I'd read the book and really loved it. And so I crept down the back stairs. <laughs> Joseph and Sharon were in their room sitting and I turned on the TV, and I watched the first two hours of Shogun. I felt much better. <laughs> and then I went in to see Deepama the next day, and I said, I can't do it. And I sat three hours, and that didn't work, and I sat five hours, and, I, and for two days I've just been striving as hard as I can, and it's just not the time. And she asked me to try again, which I did a bit that day, and then I went to watch Shogun again, part two, that next night. <laughs> and I realized, I said, I can't do it. And she said, fine, you know, when it's time for you to do this kind of practice, do it. Since I'd never worked with her before in this way, I think she also kind of doubted whether I was even capable of doing it and what I was doing teaching. But that was my problem to deal with if she, if she felt that way or hers. Um, but it just wasn't the time. Each of these kinds, these domains of liberation, liberation in the mind, freedom from self-identity, liberation of the heart, freedom from the barriers of the heart, and freedom in action, liberation in the world, each of them must be a part of our practice. If our practice is to free us in the totality of our being, and that's its, that's its gift, that's its goal, they all have to be a part of our practice. 
Now the tradition from which these teachings come, the Theravada Vipassana tradition, especially as we do it at these retreats, is most directly oriented toward the liberation in the mind, the freedom of the mind, toward the freedom from self, from identity with things, from grasping. And it touches the other domains. One learns to manifest and certainly to confront one's fear, and one learns to open the heart more, but its main orientation is toward that first. And it's done through the dissolution of the sense of I, through the dissolving of what's called the five skandhas, the five aggregates. By paying enough attention, you see that what seems to be a solid body breaks down into the four physical elements of earth, air, fire, and water, or the sensations of hot, cold pressure, tingling. Which are those elements? Pressure is the earth element, and fire, hot and cold, is the fire element, and vibration and movement is the air element, and cohesiveness and and dissolution is the water element. And you pay attention carefully enough to the physical world, and after a while, every moment, you see it changing and moving, and it's, it's fluid and it dissolves. It's like a waterfall. Dissolving of feelings. We tend to get caught and think that we have a certain feeling for a long time. But really observing the element first of pleasant, neutral, and unpleasant of all of our feelings and seeing how we get identified. We like the pleasant, we avoid the unpleasant. And by looking closely enough, we start to see moment after moment. There's one feeling and another and another and another, very, very quickly. We see elements of body, elements of feeling, elements of other aspects of the mind. Our recognition, our memory, all the things we take ourselves in the world to be the way we solidify it. There get to be moments, if we pay attention carefully, where the whole perceptual process is revealed. And there'll be a little buzzing on the ear so you know there's sound. And then a moment later, there'll be a sense of, oh, that's a bird. Even bef- uh, before the bird is known, there's this first this little sense. Then there's the recognition, which is a different process that makes us up. Then there's the next skanda, which is our reaction to it that comes into our consciousness. They all actually happen at once, but one or another will be predominant. And we'll notice, gee, birds, I like them. And there'll be an image and maybe a turning of our head to look for it. There'll be a whole impulse and desire that arises out of it. And we start to see that what seems solid in the world dissolves into these moments of seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching the physical senses, and the receiving of them, the feelings, the recognition, and and organizing of the information and our responses to it, those four processes. And the fifth skanda is consciousness, which knows all of that. As we pay attention, what happens with a careful attention in this practice is a dissolving of the solidity of our being. It's a dissolving of the rapidity, which is called santati in Pali. It happens so fast that it seems like it's solid. But if you pay careful attention, you start to see the individual frames on the movie screen. And the events of life become momentary flashes coming out of nothing for a moment, disappearing, followed by the next one. 
And as we pay attention in this kind of practice, it leads us more and more deeply to see the three characteristics, to see anicca, or impermanence, wherever we look, arising and passing moment after moment, to see how phenomena is conditioned, that everything which is created dissolves. And the more carefully we look at it, that created thing dissolves that much more quickly because our observation shows us its process of change. And so the whole sense of solidity breaks down. We see that it's not real or solid in the same way that we thought. Practice is leading us to see the three characteristics, impermanence, dukkha, or unsatisfactoriness. This one you should know as old students. And the truth is that you may be suffering more in your practice than you used to, which means probably that you're seeing it more clearly. Most people get very strong insight into anicca or anatta first, to emptiness and impermanence. And the thing that really frees them, and the thing that's the most difficult as it goes on, is seeing the the suffering and the pain in life, particularly how we grasp it. Because it's not until we feel it, we don't just want to see it, but we want to actually experience what it means to hold on to things and what it does to us. And when that's seen in the deepest way, the, the suffering that arises from that kind of attachment, then we start to really let go of this whole grasping of these five aggregates, of this whole sense of separate self. And I'll talk more about the way that practice unfolds for old students later, and maybe in one of the other nights. But it's important to recognize that if your practice seems to be filled with more dukkha and seeing of more unsatisfactoriness at times, it may not be that you're doing it wrong. It may be that you're actually seeing more clearly that which is true and which leads to a very different level of liberation. And then the third characteristic of anatta, or emptiness. More and more experiencing the ungraspability, the selflessness, that you cannot take a single thing as I or me or mine, because a moment later it's gone. Seeing that over and over and over in a deeper and deeper way until the whole sense of self starts to dissolve. And then the work with the heart, the barriers of the heart and the manifestation, those other two aspects of liberation, they follow from this, but they're not the main focus or emphasis from this way of practice. Yet for yogis who undertake a spiritual practice over a period of time, there are a number of vehicles, there are many vehicles, even within Theravada tradition, And they're appropriate to different stages in your spiral, depending where you are, where you come into a retreat. Because sometimes you'll come in and you're grieving, and sometimes you come in and you're ready to sit and just let it all dissolve. And other times you come in and and the main thing on your mind is whether whether you ha- whether you'll have enough money this year to live on and how you're going to get your your work and your career and your livelihood and your your worldly things together even though you're here in the retreat 
And within the Vipassana, the Theravada tradition, there are different approaches. There's a beautiful sutra in which the Buddha is standing in the garden or in the, in the monastery, one of the beautiful monasteries of his time. And a person comes to visit him and, and marvels and appreciates what a well-ordered and well-mannered uh, group of people these monks and nuns are around the Buddha. Just what a beautiful feeling it is there and how sincere and uh, genuine and upright they seem. And the Buddha accepts that compliment and appreciates it and says, yes, it's true. And the man says, it seems that they're learning something very wise. And the Buddha says, yes, indeed, over there is my great disciple Sariputra, who's the first in wisdom of all my monks. And collected around him are those people whose propensities, whose inner uh, character directs them to learning through wisdom. And over there is my disciple Mahamogalana, who's foremost in psychic powers. And those who have a propensity to those powers of mind are attracted to him and are practicing to free, freedom and liberation through, through his teachings. And over there is my great disciple Upali, who is the master of the Vinaya, of the monk's discipline, of, of surrender and care and mindfulness and activity. And those who are attracted to practice in that way are practicing under Upali. And over there is a master of samadhi and jhanas, and those attracted to that are with him. In contemporary Theravada Buddhism, there is this same range of teachings. And since you're old students and you are in some respects the inheritors of this lineage, I'll speak about this, particularly because it shed some light on the ways of approaching our own inner practice at different points in the spiral. There's Buddha Dasa, wonderful old teacher in Thailand, whose main practice is inquiry. He asked me to translate a book for him, which I never got around to doing, that's 1,200 pages in Thai, in which he took every single reference in the entire uh, 40 volumes of the Tripitaka of the Buddhist Sutras where the Buddha talks about the process of dependent origination. He took every single reference and coordinated them to this book that talks about learning to, to find liberation through examining the conditioned process of dependent origination. And his way for people to work is to observe contact on the senses and then the feeling which arises, and then the clinging or grasping or resisting to that, and then the desire and the action which follows that. And to begin to see the whole process of body and mind, things coming in and our conditioned response to it, until we see how mechanical it is, and find the way to become free in that. He instructs people at times just to observe their feelings, to observe in each moment whether there's a pleasant or an unpleasant or neutral, which means neither pleasant or unpleasant experience. For each moment's experience has that element of feeling. And if you just observe that carefully, a tremendous sense of freedom will come. 
because then you'll see your responses to it. Do you grasp it? Do you resist it? And through that, you begin to observe the whole chain of our conditioned being. And it's at that link of feeling and our reactions that freedom can take place. To observe the interaction of body and mind. And what's interesting in his teachings is he says, don't bother making your mind very concentrated. Don't worry about insight and, and rapture that come from powerful samadhi. If you can just stay present and observe the process moment to moment, the understanding of impermanence, of selflessness, of ungraspability, of uh, suffering, all those will become clear. And the whole freedom that is taught by the Buddha is yours to be found there. That's his way. It's a way of investigation and inquiry. Ajahn Shah, the main teacher that I studied with, his way of practice is to, to say, only let go. And at one point he says, if you let go a little, you'll be a little happy. If you let go a lot, you'll be a lot happy. And if you let go completely, you'll find complete peace. It's that simple. His way of practice integrates awareness into daily life as it goes along. He wasn't a big one on long intensive retreats and a lot of silent sitting. He would say instead to sit a few hours a day, three, four, five, depending what was right for you, and then to act in the monastery. And most importantly, to take whatever comes in your life as a challenge to work with things, to work with your reactions. If you get the wrong food, quotes, unquote, for breakfast, how do you relate to that? You got mangoes and you wanted pickles. Or you got oatmeal and you wanted uh, eggs benedict. What's your relation to that? Or it's cold out and you want it to be hot in Yucca Valley. Or the bell rang in the middle of your best sitting and everyone started making noise. To really look at all your reactions to life, that's the place, he said, you'll find freedom. And he challenged people. If you didn't like to uh, relate to people and uh, you didn't like noise, he assigned you to a monastery in Bangkok. And secondly, in his sitting practice, it was to calm yourself a bit, to quiet the heart and the mind, and then to observe. And he said the Eightfold Path isn't out there right effort and right concentration. He said the Eightfold Path is two eyes, two nostrils, a mouth, two ears, um, uh, a tongue and a body, and the mind is that which walks it. Keep it very simple. If you want to follow the Eightfold Path, see what comes in those doors and sit in the chair right in the middle. There's only one chair there. If you occupy it, you can watch everything else that comes and goes and simply observe from that place of stillness. And through it, it again leads to freedom, to non-attachment, to the seeing of a Nietzsche, Dukkha, not of impermanence, of selflessness, of ungraspability. Then there's another flavor of practice, Mahabua, Ajahn Mahabua, Sunlun Sayadaw, Ubakin was somewhat in this line where you make strenuous effort. The Sunlin Monastery is the place where, where they do this very heavy breathing. Sittings are two hours without moving, two or three hours without moving, four times a day. The first hour you sit and you breathe as hard as you can, 
and concentrate only on your breath. Blast the thoughts out of your mind, wakes you up. You just do that, and then the second hour you continue to sit without moving, and you watch the sensations in the body, and you just stay with that. And then at the end of two hours you get up, you do a little walking maybe, you're spaced out. You go back a couple hours later, an hour or two later, and you sit and you do it again. It's the main effort in that practice is concentration and a very great focusing of energy. And for certain people, it works. It develops very strong samadhi. And talk about dissolving the body and mind. It can really do that. It doesn't necessarily lead to a lot of integration, however. It has its, it has its uh, weak side. But it's a different spirit of practice, and one useful to understand, because it's a way of approaching this process which we're involved in of how to become free. A fourth kind, and in general, the retreats that, you, that we teach, Sharon and myself and Joseph and Jane and whatever, are based on this particular tradition, although there's a mixture of it, is the teaching from Mahasi Sayadaw, in which the instructions are to sit and walk, as we do pretty continuously, and to dissolve the sense of self and grasping via a very careful and continuous noting, so that one develops samadhi, one develops a, a steadiness of mind, not through a heavy breathing, but rather through a constant noting, in, out, hearing, smelling, touching, liking, disliking, reacting, in, out, rising, falling, staying with it moment after moment until what seems like a solid experience starts to dissolve into its component parts. And with it comes a kind of samadhi which is called kanika samadhi, or moment-to-moment depth or steadiness of mind. From one moment, it's changing objects. From one moment to another, we experience a different object but we do so with a fullness of our being there and there and there. And then that being dry, dies away in the next moment we're fully with that. That's the main instructions that we give, although in the spiral of your practice it may not be the thing that's appropriate for you at every single retreat. Now for one who undertakes this way of practice, just to give a little bit of a boost for it, and in this retreat, what are the ways to do this style of practice fully? If it feels like this is the kind, this is the time and cycle in your in your spiritual life to really do that. Slow down. If you want to do this Mahasi practice very deeply, let yourself really slow down and work with continuity. Eat and make a mental note for all the things that you do. Reaching, touching the fork, cold, intending to raise, raising your arm, opening the mouth, opening a door, taking a shower, turning on, cold, hot, soaping, touching, smooth. Really being there for all the physical and mental events, whatever is predominant in the moment. If you do that even for a day, if you make it continuous, your practice will change dramatically. If you're doing, if, if it's right at this time for you to do this style of practice. Going slow, continuity, making mental notes of everything which arise. Staying with the breath a lot in this first days, using it and only going off to note things when they're quite strong. Noting them quite fully then and then returning back to the breath. 
sitting longer is another way to deepen practice in that, this system. Instead of sitting for 45 minutes or an hour, many of you are older yogis. If you want to work this in this kind of intensive way, when the bell rings, just keep sitting. Do hour and 15 minute, hour and a half sittings. There'll be, for some of you, there'll be more fire and pain if that's there. Just note that. When it's strong, then go back to the breath. But it really does develop a steadiness in the samadhi. And particularly pay attention to detail. Let the mental notes be there, but in the background. Feel the, the actual experience of the breath, the coolness, the tingling, the pressure, the movement, the vibration, the warmth, the slowness, the whatever actually is going on. When you feel the sensation, go into it with your attention. What makes up that pain? There's prickles and fire and tingling and vibration and tension around it. Notice all of that, and through that careful and systematic noting, through steadiness in your sitting, maybe some longer sittings, through continuity, if you do that and give yourself to it fully, gradually the sense of yourself starts to open up in a whole new way. Now, how could one support the other kinds of practice? Suppose that you know in your heart or through your character that that's not the way for you. If you make a great effort, all that happens is you get tighter and tighter and tighter and wound up like a rubber band, which is true for some people. That way doesn't work. Suppose that it's time for you to do a practice that's more the practice of inquiry, like Buddhadasa. Follow the schedule, number one. In all of these ways of practice, don't let yourself just take nature walks and relax. They all call for a careful and full attention. So if you want to do it by inquiry, instead of doing longer sittings or making a lot of mental notes, it's to sit and walk as we do, pay attention to the breath, pay attention to the steps in the same general way, But more than anything else in keeping the schedule, really let yourself observe. You can give yourself a question. I'll observe feeling this retreat, pleasant, neutral, and unpleasant. If you spend 10 days just observing whether it's a pleasant or unpleasant or neutral feeling in each moment, your practice would go very far. Or I'll observe contact on the senses and my reaction to it. It's really fostering a spirit of observation and inquiry. Now you might say, what if it's a time in my life and the cycle in my practice where there are very strong emotions, where early traumas are arising, or there's, there's a lot of grieving to be done, which is one of our big work in our adult life. Or there's some other aspect of our emotional and inner life that's very compelling so that if you were to note the breath and the spoon and the chewing it would really take you away from what's happening the best example in Theravada tradition is Ajahn Jamnian who is a teacher whose main teaching a great deal of it is loving kindness and he really talks about the barriers to the heart and what it is that prevents us from opening in each moment. 
And so at certain times in retreats, when that's what's really compelling and present for you, your most important work will be to allow the emotions and allow the heart and really stay with that process and let that open. I'll talk more on another night about working with emotions in the heart because it's such a significant part of our practice. And there's a tremendous power in them and a lot of fear of them. And the Buddha said that in the cycle of dependent origination, the place where we get stuck most is in feelings. Just as William O. Douglas said the same thing at the Supreme Court level where I work, he said, 90% of our decisions are made based on feelings. And the other 10% of our mind is used to rationalize our feelings about things. This is the Supreme Court where it's supposed to be the bastion of logic and rationality. It's true in our whole lives. Uh, our feelings and our emotional life are, are tremendously compelling and important. Thich Nhat Hanh is a good teacher for this. When he went to Zen Center to teach a retreat, a mindfulness retreat, he said to him, you guys make this practice too grim. I want to give you a very simple practice, all you dour Zen students. And it's quite simple. They're not the only dour ones. Vipassana students get dour as well. He said, just two things. One is be aware that you're breathing or stepping on this beautiful earth and smile. And that was the instructions for the retreat. And it was really a retreat of the opening of the heart as much as it was a retreat of mindfulness. What's significant in our practice in the end, in this spiral, is that we have to connect our heart and our body and our mind. They all need to be connected together. That freedom on one of those levels is not enough. I love reading from this old Zen master, Ryokan. Read some of his poems at many retreats before. But one of the things that I like about him, he talks about playing in the fields with the children and writes beautiful Zen poems about the sunsets and so forth. But some of his other poems are, are the other side. He says, Here I am alone, wandering through the mountains. I come across an abandoned hermitage. The walls have crumbled. There is only a path for foxes and rabbits. The monk who lived here long since gone. The well next to an ancient bamboo grove is dry. Dust is piled on the floor and a book of forgotten poems lies beneath the window. Crickets disturbed by my unexpected visit shriek. The stairway is completely hidden by the wild fall grasses. Looking up, I see the sun setting. I feel unbearable loneliness. What a beautiful poem. Here's this Zen master saying, I'm so lonely. And not that it's bad or good, but there's a kind of a, an openness, a, a vulnerability. There's a whole series of his poems where he talks about, one says, light sleep, the bane of old age, sitting by the fire, listening to the rain drizzling outside. I so long to share this with someone and yet there is no one. And you just feel this poignancy and sadness in him. The matter of opening the heart and of connecting the heart with the mind, like, like the 
military and the rest of the world need to do is terribly important. And again, I'll speak more about it later as we go on. But what we have to see in our practice is that there are these domains and these dimensions, and to honor them in ourselves in the spiral. To keep it simple, mostly at a retreat, the rule is take what you get. Okay? If you sit and you're able to sit very silently and pay attention carefully, great, go for it. If you sit and you're flooded with very powerful emotional things, don't try to do some samadhi practice. You do yourself a disservice. Honor that. That's what's here. That's where you are. That's what's in the present. Work with it. That makes your practice alive. If you find yourself in a place where you're resisting and attached and you like this and you don't like that and you find yourself in a snit over 50 things, that's your place to work. You didn't like what they served for breakfast or lunch. That's your practice as well. I'd like to talk more about integration of meditation as well as the heart. But again, I think that that's worthy of its own separate evening. A few things to keep in mind, though. And that is that in whatever way you practice, a way of making it really work for your life here and your life outside is to keep yourself grounded in your body and your feelings. Not to let your practice get too out there in the mind. Integration, also the way Ajahn Chah emphasizes it. Watch your reactions and learn a kind of inner strength, a kind of, he called it endurance, where you can just sit and be with what's there and really take it and say, yep, I can let go and I can be here for this too. Another part of practice that can help with that, which isn't so appropriate in the middle of the retreat, but we can talk about more later on, is certain reflections that can be done to kind of keep our thinking even directed toward what is the purpose of our life. The monks do these every day. What do you value? What are you here for? What is it that lasts? Do you remember that you're going to die and everyone else will? Now what is your life purpose? There are a series of valuable reflections to keep the sense of integration and inquiry alive. Now, I have a concern in giving this talk to you tonight, and the reason I do it is because I, I feel that it's valuable. But my concern is that it will be confusing. You know the story of Mullah Nasruddin, who sets up his uh, question and answer booth in the marketplace? And he puts on the sign, sort of like Lucy and Peanuts, you know, uh, psychiatrist five cents. On his sign, he goes the opposite extreme. He says, any two questions answered, five gold dinars, these big, very valuable gold coins. Well, everybody thinks he's such a fool anyway, and they see him with his booth, and they think no one will do it. But finally, one rich man's in the marketplace, and he says, well, all right, I'll give it a try. Everyone crowds around, and he pulls out his coin purse and brings out these five big gold coins and plunks them down on the counter and looks at Nasruddin and says, isn't five gold dinars an awful lot to ask for two questions? And Nasruddin looks back and says, yes, and what's your second question? <laughs> 
I'm concerned somehow that in putting out this model of the spiral of practice and giving you a sense of the range of Vipassana teachings that you'll get confused. Well, what should I do? And Well, today I'll try inquiry and tomorrow I'll go back to mental noting and the day after it's not working so well anyway. Maybe I'll, I'll sit and I'll breathe heavy and that will work. Okay, that's a real concern. A few things to say about it. First of all, it's okay to be a bit confused. Confusion is not so bad because ultimately you need to learn how to guide your own practice. So if you're a little confused, you, you can learn from that. The second is, don't try to do a lot of practices on one retreat. Get a sense of where you are as you come in and follow a theme based on what's really happening for you. If it's a lot of feelings or if you're ready to really sit and develop strong samadhi, or if it's a time in your life where things are chaotic and it's more time for reflection and the kind of gentle seeing where you're attached and letting go. You can sense that in yourself. If you feel confused, other things to do is keep it simple. Just stay with the basic instructions. Follow, in everybody's case, more or less follow the schedule unless you want to do a, a bit more rigorous one. Sit, walk, stay with the breath and the walking no matter what. And then you can pay attention to other things as they arise with that. But if you feel confused, keep it very simple. Come back to the basic instructions. And if you need to also, you could come and talk to any one of the teachers. Because traditionally what's done, and it's one of the reasons that I'm happy there will be uh, the, the second half of the retreat, there'll be individual interviews over the last half for everybody in the retreat. We'll get at least two or three individual interviews. Is, is that you check in with a teacher and get a sense of where you are and share a little bit of that particularly if you have questions about whether your practice is, is on the right track. But keep it simple, basically. All of these ways come back to the same thing. They come back to the present moment and to discovering what's here. And part of that discovering is, is sensing our rhythm, the grief work and the heart work at times, or the times of dissolving the body and the whole sense of oneself, or the times to relax and soften. But all of it is found in the present moment. It's to come back here. You know, when we all sat, most of us as teachers sat this retreat with uh, Upandita Sayadaw a couple of years ago, and then a group of teachers, including Sharon and Joseph and so forth, went back to Burma again to sit with him uh, this last year. In the first year, it's interesting, one teacher uh, who, who sat with him um, was sitting and did this practice uh, in, a, in a very traditional way, the way Mahasi Saida taught it, unlike they had done it before. Uh, um, they really used the mental noting, even though they hadn't done that so much. And they worked with the breath at the belly, even though they were used to using the nose. Um, and they were used to sitting more comfortably, leaning against something or sitting in a chair in their, in their own private retreat. But they told that to Upandita, and he said, no, you should really sit cross-legged, and so they did it. And had a quite hard time doing it. The noting was difficult, and the not sitting in a more comfortable way was really hard, and so forth. And then this teacher, I won't, won't say by name who it is, but it's one of us, 
anyway, went to go and practice and had a hard time with all that and figured out a really interesting point in practice. They didn't talk to Upandita this time about how they were, how they were approaching their practice. They just didn't mention it, and he kind of assumed they were carrying on. And so in their second retreat, they found that it went much better because they went back to their chair and they went back to feeling the breath at the nose, which is what they'd worked with for a lot of years. And they dropped all that mental noting stuff, but still paid careful attention, just didn't use those little labels as much. Okay. And the lesson out of it, really important for, for that teacher and for all of us as old students, is that we have to become independent in our practice. That nobody can tell you exactly how you got to do it. Especially after you've done a number of retreats and you've gotten a good hang of it. In the beginning, yes, we need to give instructions and really give people a sense of structure of how to do it. And even ongoing to repeat that for you. But in terms of the nuances and the ways of working with it, you have to become a light unto yourself, was the last, last sermon, the last teachings of a Buddha. Become an island, become a lamp, become a light unto yourself. If you want to find liberation, it comes in your own being, in your own heart, in your own mind. And so I put this out, even though it may be confusing, because I really want to support you in finding a sense of strength and independence in your practice. And what you, what you need to do is to do that which keeps your practice alive, which keeps you most aware Walk at the speed that keeps you most aware. Sit the length of time that keeps you most present. Pay attention in the way that keeps your mind the steadiest and the clearest. And to keep the quality of presence and inquiry and aliveness as a part of your practice. And then it will continue to grow. Because in doing this, in keeping it alive, it brings us to the things that we most have to see. It's we who have to see it. The Buddha saw it already. It doesn't matter for him or anybody else. We have to see our attachments and how they create suffering and what it really means to let go. We've got to see that ourselves. We have to see ourselves when the heart is closed, and what does it? Not to judge it, because it has its seasons, like a flower. But what are the barriers to it being open? And when we're connected with the earth around us and when we're not? And how, how we can open our hearts? We have to learn to do that. And we have to learn what it means to be free in the world, to be able to manifest and not be caught by our fear. And we have to learn what it means, this teaching of selflessness. Something we have to come to, that we are none of these things, or all of them. Thank you for listening. 
To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.